This is The Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joe Cohen from Queens College. I'm Leslie Hankson from Georgetown University. And I'm Gabriel Rossman from UCLA. We are on the web, theannexpodcast.com, on Twitter, at Sociannex, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. Today, we're very excited to be talking to John Eason. John is an associate professor of sociology at Texas A&M and the author of Big House on the Prairie, uh, the rise of rural ghetto and prison proliferation from the University of Chicago Press. Thank you very much for being here, John. We're excited to talk to you. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I wanted to talk about the uh, hubbub that emerged on Twitter and then eventually... Uh, Which one? Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> Take your pick. Uh, the one that emerged in Inside Higher Ed over the uh, ESS. Basically what happened was the ESS listed speakers for its 2018 annual meetings and there was some blowback. Some people felt like it was not diverse some felt like the lineup was very elitist, only representing the Ivies with a, 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 a smattering of other schools for good measure. Did you guys see this? Was there any reaction from you guys? Uh, well, my primary reaction was, uh, uh, why are we surprised? Uh, that That's my primary reaction. Surprised at what? At the panel or at people complaining about the panel? Actually, I was slightly surprised at people complaining about the about the plan, about the those plenary sessions because I kind of felt like that's I, I mean that just seems kind of like the norm. Oh yeah, I, I look at this and I see like a, a panel at ESS that is all that looks like my doctoral committee it is like the sun rising in the east. Why would I be surprised by that? Yeah, yeah, and like literally your committee, right? Because so yeah. many of them were faculty at Princeton while yeah. we were there, or you know, and yeah, or there now. This is uh, I was I came out of Chicago. This doesn't surprise me at all because you know this is this is what we do as sociologists. Uh, I'm I'm also a criminologist, and it's amazing how many criminologists are. Uh, former deviants, right? They even admit to being <laughs> deviants, but we study stratification. And one of my uh, senior colleagues of color, Verna Keith, always says we're great at studying stratification because we're so good at reproducing it. And it's not even like, I don't think they went out of their way to do this. I don't think anyone like consciously does this. This is just that they, they got their friends together like they normally do. Mm -hmm. And uh, they want to have a conversation with them in public. And that's, right. I think this is reproduced, not just at the Easterns, you can see this across most conferences. Um, and like Leslie, I'm not surprised by this at all, as much as I'm kind of surprised by the reaction. Like, what, what's, what's the, uh, what are people really, what do they want to get out of this? Right? That's, it's, it's, um, I go back to my social movement days prior to um, becoming a professor. And I think, um, there's the actions and the reaction, right? Mm -hmm. So as a community organizer, you, you say something or do something cause you want a reaction. So what do people really want to see here? What's the major change they, ex they expect? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So very similar to, uh, what John's mentor had said, uh, my friend, uh, the journalist Megan McArdle will always say that, uh, 
academics think of themselves as very egalitarian, but they can walk into the room, any room, and immediately size up the status of everyone there like their courtiers at Versailles. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's the name badge scan, right? That's how it goes. And I think that's why people care about the prestige of their institution. Because yeah, that's a, prefer- a perennial feature in uh, Kieran Healy's ASA Bingo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is uh, one of the most genius pieces of sociology comedy there is. It's one of my favorite things. But, like, on yeah. the other hand, so let me try to uh, play devil's advocate just to well, – I, I, I think of, like, organizing the ESS must be a big job. Like, I, I have never participated in it. It seems like a really big job with a lot of moving parts – and what about the idea that, all right, you just, you got to fill up the lineup and you want to click that off your to-do list. So you just reach out to people who you know are going to be draws, who you know can deliver a good speech. And they might say, all right, well, this is a, you know, this is a preliminary list. I went out, I populated it and it's, uh, you know, we can, we can add people like the ESS says, we've heard you, we've added people. They put more women on the list. I uh, assume they put more uh, non-white scholars on the list. So is everything all good or is there still something that we're not confronting here? So what's funny to me is this. I think the main thing that you said there that's really the tell is the draw, right? Is that Mm. if you're putting a plenary, this is not just a panel, right? This is a plenary session. It's supposed to be a big draw. It's going to be in the big room. And, you know, for that uh, status and reputation and fame, almost has to be a big part of it because you're trying to fill the room. And you can make a good argument that that shouldn't be the orientation. I myself usually, well, actually pretty uniformly skip plenary sessions because I think they're not that interesting. (laughs) Uh, So you can make a good argument that we shouldn't have these kind of like big superstar panels of just, you know, uh, pontificating. But if you are going to have them, you almost by definition have to have famous people who are going to have a draw. Because if you open up to people who've never heard of, nobody's going to show up. I mean, that's true, right? But is it just because you haven't heard of someone doesn't mean other people haven't? You know, mm. it's kind of like in, you know, another big job is when you are in a, are in a job search committee, mm-hmm. right? And one of the ways that you try and get around the work of reading three to 400 files is you call your buddies and you say, Hey, do you have, if, if you're looking for an assistant, you say, do you have any promising students coming out? Mm-hmm. Right. And you rely on the word of your buddies to tell you which of those files you should pull out so that you can just scan the rest. Well, what we know about social reproduction, right. Which we learned, you know, first, you know, first year in, you know, in classical and contemporary theory is our buddies tend to be just like us, right? right? And when we think about mentoring in graduate schools, um, what do our mentees look like, right, compared to us? So if you are trying to have any kind of diversity, you know, within your selection process, whether it's gender, whether it's race, ethnicity, whether it's ideas, right, you need to get out of your social network and get out of your own wheelhouse in terms of the types of research and questions you think are interesting. And I, 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 I do think I get it. Organizing one of these things is probably a huge hassle, right? And you do shortcuts and you say, well, who do I know? Mm-hmm. Right? Who can I call? Well, like I said, if you want to ensure that you are 
that you are getting the biggest crowd possible, I think you also need to think about diversity. Um, and as I said, um, and it doesn't have to be just about gender, race and ethnicity, sexuality, et cetera. It can just be ideas hmm. and questions. It could even be rank, but Joe, Joe, uh, is this just about homophily? Is that what your question boils down to? Well, I'm wondering if it's just a, a it's a pragmatic choice where there's a big job and maybe not enough people to who are doing the task of organizing it, and is this like a a, pra, a practical oversight that? People voiced a concern about and it's fixed. And is I'm asking, is everybody happy with this or are we just papering it over and not addressing the causes that ultimately created this first draft? I, I see the issue less as homophily than status, right? It, uh -huh. It's not so much of uh, because if you're talking about it, I mean, maybe it's homophily is status homophily, but that's kind of tautological, right? But I, I see this mostly as an issue of it's big, famous people who everybody's already heard of, which, again, I think is kind of in the nature of it. But the reason people are critical of that is they see it is that it's a cumulative advantage process where you need somebody who's famous in order to fill the room, but putting them in the plenary session makes them more famous. But that's how status works, right? right. It, status works in the form of a cumulative advantage process. It's, it's just basic to it. Uh, and people can kind of like that or not like it. But again, I think it's kind of in the nature of if you're going to have a plenary session, it's going to work like this, which maybe is a good reason not to have a plenary session. Can I can I ask you guys uh, your opinion? How many well-known people in sociology are like Kim Kardashian famous? Like they're famous for being <laughs> famous. Like nobody read their work, but they know that everybody knows them. And so they assume that they're great. You know, you, you understand what I'm saying? Like, yeah. What, oh, what? Well, uh, well uh, to half this list, but I'm not going to tell you which half. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm kidding about that. It's also the jumbo shrimp oxymoron, oxymoronic <laughs> problem here. If like you're what? sociology famous, are you really famous? <laughs> no, that's, that one is that's just really, <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other issue, right? So um, I think that's, that's part of why uh, I can't put too much stock in this whole argument, right? I understand the power, prestige argument, mm -hmm. um, but these things that we're going to continue to reproduce this. This isn't. This is. Uh, this does represent a much deeper and broader problem that you know Leslie's kind of touching on as well. It starts in the back rooms. Uh, and, and she's talking about jobs that were actually advertised, right? Mm. What about the yes. shadow market, right? There's a whole shadow market in the academy where people, you see people moving institutions. And you're like, I didn't even know a job was advertised there, right? <laughs> so this is, this, is a, this is a very small problem in terms of distribution of resources um, across the discipline. Um, Are you talking and, about a senior or junior? Because I feel like at junior, it's pretty uh, bureaucratic and fair. Uh, whereas senior, I think you have more of a point. No, I, I, uh, no. I, I was talking about junior. <laughs> She's talking about junior. I'm saying even within the, uh, within, within the advanced assistant or associate market, you don't have mm -hmm. to be fresh out. But uh, if you're going to say it's more fair, uh, I think Leslie's point is to uh, look at... Um, junior just looking at straight juniors i've i've seen the same thing where 
certain people. I've seen high, this, this works even with uh, people who are coming from higher ranked institutions. If they're not in the, in the right buddy system, I've seen their file get thrown out. They'll, they'll be at better institutions and have great, uh, a great CV. Um, and they're not on, they're not in the buddy network of someone on the hiring committee. They won't make the uh, long list or even the short list. But isn't there sort of like, is I, I, I'm wondering, is there a world of elite sociology that includes the associations and the grad programs? And it's just its own contained universe. And there are like thousands of sociologists who are functioning apart from ESS or ASA. They don't hire from the elite schools and like the discipline is just totally ignoring the existence of that. And maybe there there's there's something to that argument. Oh, for sure. I mean, you see, you, I see that at, at ASAs, right? I totally see that. You know, I mean, you have like the one sort of like, you know, you know, ASA version of People magazine, you know, sort of getting together at the lobby bar, right? Doing that sort of thing, right? Being seen and, and watching. And then you have everybody else who's there to like, I'm going to sessions, right? Because I want to learn something. I'm going to meet up with my friends from grad school because it's the one time of the year I see them. And I'm happy to be away from my kids. I mean, and, and, Hitting a nerve there. Right? And, you know, and it seems to me, yeah, there, I mean, there are people who go to ASA to learn, right? To listen to other people's ideas, right? Um, and, and to share their ideas. And I actually, and then there is this other segment of the ASA that I actually think believe they're above that, right? Um, we're here to network, we're here to be seen. Uh, okay, we're here to drink too, right? Um, but, you know, and, and if we do go to sessions, it's we're only going to sessions where we're presenting or where there's someone there that I actually want to be able to talk to afterwards. And I think, yeah, I, 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 I think that there are two, there are two ASAs going on while we're there. I, I have to say as, as someone from a less wealthy uh, system, you got to, if you don't have a research grant, I don't know how a lot of my colleagues can even afford to be part of the ASA. Like uh, three, $400 is a pretty heavy lift for a, a membership yeah. fee for a lot of these a lot of these people. I know that there's a there's a different fee structure but still. Well, that's a that's a whole different yeah, uh, conversation about whether the ASA bites off more than it can chew and you know, one that I've been involved with for a while about you know, should we have a minimal organization that just focuses on professional service or should we have an organization that basically wants to be a lobbyist yeah. which is much more expensive. <laughs> Well, yeah, well, that's, that's for another episode. Should we wrap up this? Uh... Well, I, just one more thought on this. So in that Inside Higher Ed, uh -huh. you, you had, um, you know, Huey complained about the panel. Fair enough. He, uh -huh. he has his opinion. Uh, and then uh, Victor Nee basically said, uh, you know, I, do, I don't think it's professional. You should erase this privately. And I'd appreciate if you retracted it, which I also think is fair enough. But... Uh, in Inside Higher Ed, he's, Huey's complaining to Inside Higher Ed saying it was bullying and authoritarian that could have a chilling effect on academics' willingness to promote change from within their fields. Which <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, which strikes I'm me as like, I, I, I'm complaining about you, and then you complain back about me, and then I say, stop hitting me. 
you know, uh, whereas, <laughs> yeah. like if, if, if knee had said, uh, if you don't retract this, you know, we'll kick you off the board or we'll make sure that you never presented ESS or something like that. I would be a hundred percent on Huey's side, but he's just saying, um, I didn't appreciate that. I'd appreciate it if you retract it. Who, well, even if he said that, even if he was like, you'll, you'll never work in this town again, sort of thing. Right. Well, that would be bullying. Even, yeah, that would be bullying. But he, but didn't, even if he, he just said, said that. could you please retract it, you know? Right. So, uh, yeah, that, so that struck me as a little uh, funny, this kind of thing of, like, people who pick fights, and then as soon as somebody pushes back, even in a very appropriate fashion, they say, you know, you're oppressing me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the other thing, though, is, you know, this could also have been, you know, as some people have, have said, you know, it was just basically we invite people, not everybody says yes, and this is who you end up with. Yeah. Right. Um, so, you know, so again, you know, is this a problem? You know, was this done intentionally? Um, I think actually the I think the bigger point is is the fact that that this actually sparked a conversation somewhere. How much you so. want to bet that fewer people say yes next year? <laughs> oh, no. Right. Because if you yeah. were if you were Duncan Watts or, uh, you know, or for that matter, you know, or whomever. Would you Paul DiMaggio? Yeah, yeah. Whatever. Would you would want you, your you name just... affiliated with this? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Would you want to have it be? Would you want to have your name appearing on tweets that get forty-eight retweets and say, "If you don't see a problem here, you might be part of the problem." It's like I don't want to be a problem, so I'm just going to say no to this. I don't think they care that much. Uh, yeah. But it's really this is uh, this is I I can't we could if we're really about social activism if that's what people are claiming they're doing. I don't see this panel as the problem, right? Yeah, That's my issue. If you want to do something for real, we there are much bigger problems we can address. Yeah. It doesn't start in sociology. I don't well, have time like to the, argue yeah. with sociologists about what panel they're putting together. Right? Yeah, I think you got to go. Um, this is an instance of uh, the fights are so vicious because the stakes are so small. Yeah, the stakes yeah. are so small. Who cares about this plenary? Either go to it or don't. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things. It's not like it's money. You know, there's a lot of time or 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 a uh, or even more important, um, you know, unless this panel is getting turned into uh, a special edition in ASR or something, <laughs> then I have an issue because I'd want to be on the panel. But unless, yeah, it's, right? unless it's a publication or money, I don't see what we're arguing about here. I mean, yeah. you can talk about stratification for stratification's sake uh -huh. and point out race, class, gender stratification all day. But I think uh, I'm not going to argue with people who whose heart may be in the right place. Maybe mm -hmm. I'm not even going to argue. I'm not even going to guess what their uh, politics are necessarily. Mm -hmm. I just don't have time. Uh, like you said, Leslie, there's you have family, you have mm -hmm. your own institution. Mm -hmm. Who has yeah. time for this? I don't have time for stuff like this. So I saw this. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, actually, no, Matt. Matt's not a bad guy. Matt Huey, he's a good guy. But I'm like, what? I, I don't have time to argue. So so I got something. Um, so it, I don't think we'll talk about it quite as long as that. But um, I just listened to uh, uh, an audiobook of uh, Dick Chaudhary's uh, Cultural Revolution of People's History. Uh, and what struck me as interesting about that is, you know, it, 
and one way to appreciate it is just like all like, oh, here's these atrocities and here's all these various things. But at a very grand level, what the Cultural Revolution was about was about Mao trying to maintain control against the party apparatus. And he did so by mobilizing kind of a grassroots and telling them, attack the party apparatus. And I was thinking about that and I was thinking, where have I seen this before? Why does this seem familiar? And I realized it's uh, something you see in people like uh, Polybius and Fukuyama, who argue that traditionally there's three big social classes. There's the monarch, there's the oligarchs, and then there's the demos, you know, the people. And it's wrong to think of the monarch as part of the oligarchy. And very often oligarchies fiercely resist uh, monarchs. And, um, you know, that was the story of the Roman Revolution in the first century B.C., mm-hmm. is it was fundamentally the uh, oligarchy versus the monarchy, that is to say the Senate versus Caesar. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's this case, but, you know, you can, historically, the monarch is very often allied with the demos against the oligarchy, right? It's mm-hmm. the common people and the monarchy against the nobility. Uh, and that's effectively what you had in the Cultural Revolution, in that you had the party chairman allied with the Red Guards and the party cadre and the, um, you know, basically high school students who he told, you know, go beat up your teachers, go beat up the local party officials, because he was scared that the party officials would push him out on the model of uh, Khrushchev versus Stalin. Okay, so obviously, when you're talking about oligarchy, you're talking about like uh, super elites uh, uh, in, 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 in the ancient world or in China. But, you know, I was thinking a little bit Stop me if this is way off base of what you're talking about, but I was thinking a little bit about uh, the uh, tax debate right now about 401ks and, uh, you know, cutting uh, taxes on the rich. Yeah. And so a 401 and and a lot of it is being construed as uh, uh, pitting the middle class versus the uh, versus elites. But mm-hmm. if, if you take a look at the personal finances of people who have 401ks, it's like it's like 10, 15 percent of people have anything serious in the way of 401k holdings. And yeah. you see that a lot of the distributional battles that are being waged right now are like they're like that privileged group that we're definitely part of. Right. That yeah. privileged 10 or so percent, the dream hoarders against the <laughs> uh, the super elite. Oh, no, I think that's true, right? So you're making a good connection, right? I was talking about something where it's like, unless you're an ancient history nerd like me, mm. you'd have no connection to it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the more abstract way to say this is that you can have top-bottom coalitions against the middle, uh-huh. or or alternately, you can have the middle against the top and the bottom. You know, we don't uh-huh. want to assume that one side is necessarily the aggressor. And that, to a certain extent, does describe our politics, and that, you know, you can have uh, one party that kind of unites the uh, the bottom in terms of social class and some factions of the elites, and then um, you have another cl- uh, political party that unites the uh, the middle class and uh, some factions of the elite. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I think uh, it's playing out not just in our politics, but you know, also on the local level. I mean, we see across the country in places you know, where there's been significant uh, demographic change. Uh, And by that, I mean neighborhoods in which um, higher income 
individuals have moved in and kind of and sort of started pushing out lower income people mm -hmm. um, now all of a sudden then turning around and saying okay fine now we need to fight for affordable housing yeah. <laughs> right meaning meaning housing affordable for people like us yeah. right not low enough for those people that we displaced mm -hmm. right but protecting us against you know against those people who are well even wealthier than we are who were trying to encroach on our territory yeah. it just, it strikes me like so much of our politics is basically yeah it's like a it's a fight at the top and i don't think either party seems to really represent people at the bottom it's basically like that university educated class who are all the journalists and teachers and all that pitted against the billionaires so there's just a total indifference to on all fronts towards people at the bottom yeah yeah, total indifference to people at the bottom, right? Where, you know, it's that was something that I thought was so remarkable, not to get back to politics, but, you know, in the last, you know, presidential election, I was like, where are all the poor people? Wait a minute, how <laughs> right? can you say there's a total indifference? I mean, one of the major political issues of the last six months was whether to preserve a large Medicaid expansion. Right. Well, I'm so the Medicaid expansion isn't necessarily for poor people. The reason why it was expanded was to include working class well, people. It, it, okay, so it's not just for poor people; it's for near poor people. So mm, <laughs> I, I don't. I, I, I actually, I actually think that that's one of the reasons why people were against the Medicaid expansion because they were like, if we're going to have Medicaid, it's got to be for poor people, right? These other people, I don't know, they just work harder. Um, and so, I mean, if you think about it, in some places, that Medicaid expansion is actually quite generous. It's like a lot of Medicaid's for old people, like regardless. Well, but that that's true in the form that a lot of Medicaid is actually for middle class people who've spent down their savings and use it for nursing homes. Yeah. But, uh -huh. uh, but that's not the cultural image. And therefore, even if that's objectively true, it's not what people are fighting about. People perceive yeah, Medicaid so as health care for poor people or near poor people. Nowadays. Yeah. And so that's what I'm saying is I actually think the reality about, you know, whether or not there had been a discussion about during the presidential election, hey, why aren't we looking out for poor people? Right. And the working poor, they were totally absent. And then, you know, for the first time in a I, while. I like your idea of during while the fireworks factory is exploding, we should be reading my white paper. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, How do the Americans tolerate that? Like, not to be whatever, but like... <laughs> oh, now you're not an American anymore? Now you're right. Canadian and we're talking about 26. I, I take my American hat on and off. Yeah, that's right, yeah. I, I can't say I blame you, Joe. I can't say I blame you. How do we tolerate it? It's part of our culture. Um, but like, we really, what is it? Uh, we go out of our way to blame poor people, no matter what happens to them. It's their fault. We go out of way out of our way to do that. Um, even people who are just above, I shouldn't say even people, especially people who are recently not poor, right? Like they just got off of welfare. They're, they're the main moralizers talking about how people need to work harder, right? And this also cuts across, uh, this cuts across racial lines as well. Uh, you know, many, many, uh, African Americans and Latinos, uh, you know, I love Celeste Watkins Hayes' book when she looks at welfare officers uh, and the bureaucrats there mm -hmm. that are disproportionately people of color really are blaming. Uh, they really have a tough time with uh, the people of color that they're supposed to service, right? So they um, do a lot of 
basically victim blaming for people who are in those circumstances. And that's part of our culture. That's like a major pastime of America. Like it's not just on Fox News. It's done in a more subtle way through other media outlets. But it's it's either it's the poor are seen as this political football where they have no control, no agency. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's by uh, good lefty liberals or everything's their fault. Right. Um, And they have a culture of poverty, which can explain everything about them. Um, so this is this has been a tired conversation that we've been engaged in for years. Mm. Um, I, I don't know how to really push us beyond this. And it, it cuts ac- across multiple cleavages. Uh, it seems to be like an or- urban northern conversation. Mm. But, you know, it's also dominates uh, regions uh, across regions and uh, rurality. So in the south, uh you know, this is a huge conversation. I live in the South. I've studied the South and in rural communities as well. This is this type of moralizing um, and it fits in even with our religion. So uh, this move towards uh, uh, Americans uh, being more into the gospel of prosperity, the prosperity gospel, um, it you know, they forgot the book of Job, um, not to turn this into a sermon mm-hmm. or proselytizing or anything, but good, quote unquote, good Christian folks who go to these, uh, go to these uh, churches that emphasize the prosperity gospel. Uh, it, it just, it, it's who we are in America. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, I don't know if any of you read that book by Nancy Eisenberg, White no. Trash. What it's like. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, right. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's it's not an easy read. I actually hate her writing style, um, but but I mean, but yeah, I mean, she basically she's like this whole history of despising poor folk in America has been around since before we were America, mm-hmm. right? It's been four hundred years in the making, and you know we have that term "white trash" for a reason. You know, it's because there are certain class of people um, who, upon arrival in this country, who were basically treated as totally disposable, right? So her I'm not talking about slaves. I'm not talking about slaves because you had to pay for them, right? <laughs> These are white, yeah. So hillbilly, yes. hillbilly. Um, Yeah, I have I've been trying to make it through that book and I have such a hard time because it's (laughs) basically the whole culture of poverty argument applied to poor whites. So if we're Mm -hmm. doing this, if if we're doing this, if white supremacy is set up where we're doing this to poor whites. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. What chance do people of color have? Right. Um, You see all the polls where. Trump supporters believe that, uh, and I'm not just saying this is race or class, it's a combination of both of these things, an intersection along gender and uh, sexual orientation as well. If Trump supporters, a majority of folks that voted for Trump, think that uh, white people are the most discriminated against group. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. (laughs) This is just like, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard of, right? Like, what yeah. what empirical evidence? If white people in this country are doing bad, uh, the rest of us really, if they're being discriminated against and they're doing bad because of discrimination, people of color, women, just should not get out of bed. Like, yeah, well, John, what other explanation can there be if a white man 
isn't successful if it isn't discrimination. Yeah. Well, so the uh, you got me. So John mentioned Hillbilly Elegy. I haven't read that, but I, I have been reading um, the last few feature articles by Kevin Williamson in National Review, which are very much. I mean, basically, his last few articles could be called, you know, uh, White Trash Chronicles One through Three, uh, where he's been writing these features, basically talking about how, uh, you know, poor whites are very often extremely dysfunctional in uh in their habits and have a lot of uh self-created problems and he has an interesting point in that uh when conservatives look at problems of uh black people say they'll be very um quick to bring up issues of self-destructive behavior or you know behavior that's not necessarily the most conducive so uh extramarital fertility that sort of thing Mm -hmm. Uh, and then he's pointing out that there's a little bit more of a understanding or compassion or whatever in the case of uh, white trash. And he's actually arguing that um, people should be skeptical, critical, and um, attribute individual responsibility for problems in both cases. And he brings up examples of like his own uh, mother having all sorts of problems that were entirely her fault. Mm. Uh, so he's kind of talking... so. It's an interesting perspective in, uh, well, in what it argues, and similar to Hillbilly Elegy, and that he's also talking about his own background. So I have two mm-hmm. two comments on that. Now, number one is so I'm from I'm from Canadian mining country. Uh, uh-huh. Like from that's Canada. right. I mean, nobody will know that. Maybe if somebody from Canada, but basically, I'm from the Canadian version of mining country, and it's socialist. But that makes sense. Because you would expect people who are in an economically distressed community to be very much in favor of socialism. Like I, I can't get my head around sort of this, this, the, 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 the really the strong animosity towards redistribution and socialism that sort of seems to be taken up by by poor whites in, in, in you know in our. America. Well, we used to have we used to have uh, poor whites are. Uh, disproportionately rural, right? Um, that you're going to have fi- higher concentration of poor whites in rural communities. So, if you look at like the Appalachians, uh, there used to be um, there used to be a strong sense of uh, organizing, like against the coal companies. There's a great movie uh, called Made of One, which shows mm-hmm. uh, the uh, development. It's almost like a documentary. It, it feels. Uh, very much like a documentary, but it traces some of that the same history you're uh, talking about the the workers' rights uh, and people or, uh, organizing and unionizing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the issue is that poor whites uh, have been, and I hate to sound like just like a straight up Marxist here, mm-hmm. opiate of the masses sort of thing. But culturally, even if they don't go to church uh-huh. uh, all the time, right, uh, the culture, even if they're secular, the culture about uh, this so-called war on Christmas and all of these other these cultural wars uh-huh. that folks have engaged in uh-huh. uh, and religion is a basis of it. Right. This mm-hmm. very conservative religion uh, that we a very conservative Christianity that we have in this country uh permeates these areas permeates these communities and that's why uh that's why it's that's why we get what we get here it's cultural um more than anything but it's not the culture of poverty 
It's just uh, these do- dominant ideology. Uh, you know, what one thing that I really can relate to with these, uh, you know, West Virginian Republicans and the Northern Ontarians that I'm from is this uh, dislike of uh, high-minded big city folk and a feeling of being debased or, you know, devalued in the general national conversation, being treated like hicks and things like that. And maybe they just react in a different direction. I just wanted to yeah. quickly interject that. Gabe, did you have something to say? Yeah, so I, I had two thoughts on what John said, uh, all, all of which I pretty much agree with. So one is, um, you know, you he said, well, you said, um, you know, they have this conservative religious background, even if they don't go to church. That, that actually was a huge cleavage in the Republican primary in that um, evangelicals who went to church all voted for Cruz and evangelicals who didn't go to church all voted for Trump. So... There was this there's a difference between having this identity and in some way practicing it and having this identity and having it as a source of resentment. And, um, you know, as Ross Douthat always says, if you don't like the Christian right, wait till you see the post-Christian right. And (laughs) (laughs) that pretty much seems to have been the story of this election. And then my other thought is that uh, everything you're saying about America could also apply to France uh, in that, you know, the. You have these kind of uh, rural uh, downscale whites who a a generation or two ago, many of them would have been communists. Uh, Now they're all front national. And now we turn to John Eason. John is an associate professor of sociology at Texas A&M and the author of Big House on the Prairie, Rise of the Rural Ghetto and Prison Proliferation from the University of Chicago Press. Thank you very much for joining us, John. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. I appreciate being part of this panel. Oh, we're we, grateful we should have people did. with uh, such great titles all the time. I mean, <laughs> it just perfectly yeah, encapsulates your thesis. It, it, it does. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your work? So we were leaving a discussion of uh, why we came into sociology. And I actually, uh, I was a community organizer. Um, so I was a practicing Marxist, right? Um, and I had read a lot of Marx in undergrad. I, when I left undergrad, I wanted to go out and change the world. Mm-hmm. I thought there were a lot of things that needed fixing. Um, having grown up at the time I did, uh, I finished college about 1994. So um, I was very much into activism. Uh, when I went to University of Illinois, I wanted to, or I was involved with a number of protests there uh, around racial discrimination uh, redistribution of resources on campus. Um, so when I came out, I actually had a degree in urban and regional planning. I wanted to work in housing because of, um, at that time, the plan for transformation was just getting underway to uh, take down a lot of the housing developments in Chicago. Uh, and I was worried about how uh, people would be uh, redispersed, right? Uh, and you can see a number of studies, you know, to moving the opportunity and the rest of those studies that have sort of tracked how that went about. But I didn't know if the academy was the best place to start. So I started uh, in community organizing. I was closing drug houses. Uh, we were very concerned with uh, changing uh, the South Side. In fact, the, uh, the South Side of Chicago, the organization I worked for, 
uh, was a church-based community organization called the Alliance of Congregations Transforming the South Side, or ACTS, hmm. um, <laughs> straight out of a uh, straight biblical reference. Um, and during one of the during one of the uh, marches, because we closed a lot of drug houses, uh, during one of the marches, um, a leader, one of my church leaders, uh, said. Basically, we're sending our young black kids downstate for white, uh, for poor rural whites to get uh -huh. jobs, yeah. right? And there was all of this talk of this so-called prison industrial complex. Mm -hmm. um, fun fact, I was actually uh, organizing in a neighborhood that Mary Patillo was studying for her first book, uh, Black Picket mm -hmm. Fences. Um, and I was, uh, I was actually a subject in in that yeah. study, but uh, <laughs> I was super paranoid back then. As a as a practicing Marxist, I didn't want uh, I didn't want to be identified in any way. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm outing myself now because mm -hmm. this also leads into my trajectory or how I get into grad school. So I basically I leave uh, I leave organizing and come into. Uh, the University of Chicago, um, and I'm studying to get a master's in public policy. I'm offered uh, uh, an internship in the mayor's office. From there, I'm offered a job. And that summer, um, after my first year uh, working on my MPP, uh, I started looking into social program. Um, I met a few professors, uh, Richard Taub, uh, Rob Sampson, and I was thinking, oh, maybe I'll give this a try. I had been a social minor uh, in undergrad, um, and I thought there wasn't enough there wasn't enough thinking of how to improve communities, mm -hmm. right? Um, organizing the type of organizing I was doing uh, needed to change. The model needed to change. So I was thinking, oh, I'll go get a PhD. Uh, I'll look at social change. I'll be able to help improve communities that way. And I've sort of been lost in the academy uh -huh. since. Um, <laughs> the first mistake I made was, uh, uh, you know, going to University of Chicago. If that's the case, <laughs> uh, you really don't go back <laughs> into the community from that. Um, not too many. So it's not just where fun goes to die. Uh, it's once you where get a PhD. Uh, community engagement goes no. to die. Yeah. Oh, yes, it's where, well, unless you just. So a recent, uh, a good friend of mine, Rami. Um, Rami is a is a MacArthur Genius Award winner. Uh, he he was a urban sociologist, ethnographer, did his dissertation in the Middle East, and then he went back to commu to uh, community organizing. He just left the academy, never went in, uh, unless you just go a completely different route, um, because you get sidetracked and you get into much of like what we were talking about to start this podcast, the world of the academy. Mm -hmm. Um, you, you have to know who your audience is. You get caught up in these things. Uh, so I shouldn't say the mistake I made. It's been, it was great coming out of Chicago and trying to temper, uh, some of my incredibly, uh, Marxist tendencies with, you know, other social theorists like Weber, mm -hmm. um, and, and understanding how, uh, the so-called prison industrial complex in my book, I rethink that as a penal industrial complex, um, something, mm -hmm. uh, something that uh, David Garland refers to as a new iron cage where justification for prison buildings have been replaced with the, quote, um, 
the system taking on a life of its own, giving rise to adaptive behavior, serving secondary interests. So that's, uh, you know, that's sort of uh, where my book uh, is situated, where it takes off from. I start, uh, I started it, I started to questions while I was um, organizing. And I think uh, I spent years collecting not just qualitative, but also quantitative data data and trying to figure out how best to uh, um, tackle this problem um, where we've gone from 511 to 600, 1,663 prisons in 30 plus years. Uh, everyone talks about the supply side of um Mass, mass imprisonment, right? We, uh, we uh, incarcerate over 2 million people annually. And what do you think is going to happen in these rural communities? Because most prisons are built in, in those communities. Uh, when you try and take their prisons, right? Uh, they're not going to give the, them up Is easy, the problem so. the number of prisons or is the problem the number of prisoners? Cause, and I, I, I make that distinction in the sense that my understanding is that large prisons tend to have much more severe gang problems and otherwise be much more unpleasant places to serve your time uh, than small prisons. And so, like, if I could, let's say I had a magic wand and I could keep the, the prison population as is or maybe cut it 10%, but double the number of prisons. So basically each prisoner's in a smaller prison. I'd do that in a heartbeat just, just so that people could serve their time without getting, uh, you know, being forced to join gangs to survive. Well, that's so. Those are two separate problems. So the the problem you asked, um, and, and actually you brought up a third, uh, what's going on inside the prison. So the problem of too many prisoners. Yes, we have far too many prisoners in in the U.S. Two million people, more than two million people, locked up annually, with a disproportionate number of them uh, being nonviolent drug offenders has been talked about uh, repeatedly, right? That's a that's a huge Wait, problem. Are a majority of the, the other problem, drug offenders. I thought uh, if you in the in the federal system you have a very high proportion are drug offenders, but in the but ninety percent of prisoners are state and local, and in that I thought it was something like a third right. are drug offenders, and most of them are property or violent crime. Most many yeah. are property and violent, but it, the. It doesn't. I'm. I'm. I didn't. I should check my uh, sure. parse this out correctly. Even if a third of them are mm -hmm. nonviolent drug offenders, that's too many people in a system that's not uh -huh. going to get them better. Right? We sure. need to have better alternatives. The prisons themselves are mm -hmm. a whole other problem um, because the prison. Uh, if you look within the institution, I yes, think that's what exactly. you were hinting at, Gabriel. What's happening inside the institution? Um, we really haven't cared uh, much about what goes on inside on inside of prisons yes. since the eighties. That means people who work for the prisons, their their uh, job is increasingly difficult. And we've also uh, my work points towards a bigger problem. I think a bigger problem in the sense that. Um, you know, are there too many prisons or are have we just created jobs that are connected to a system that we don't mm -hmm. know the future of? Right. Um, so we have four hundred and fifty thousand mm -hmm. corrections officers mm -hmm. in this country. Uh, there, There's uh, all of this talk about privatization, but most mm -hmm. of them are not private. Um, and that's the big problem. Uh, 
we have a huge political economy built up around uh, prison building. Um, and I think that's something my I'm trying to shine the light on it. Uh, as you go to, re- if, if we were able to reduce the number of prisoners uh, on the supply side, if we were able to reduce the number of prisoners, you're still going to have a fight with um, these communities that are not predominantly rural fighting to keep those uh, prisons. So that's a, we've set ourselves up for a, uh, another battle. And this wasn't a, this, we didn't think about this as we built all of these prisons to house prisoners. Um, we didn't consider these things. And that's what my work is pointing to. And so part of, uh, and so part of what you're saying is there are these perverse incentives actually to continue to, to, if not build prisons, then to at least maintain the number of beds that, that we currently have. The, there's incredibly perverse incentives and they uh, complicate race and class in incredibly um, counterintuitive ways. So the first thing I found uh, on my rabbit hole into the academy was um, that uh, places, so we believe, when I came into grad school, I believed that, oh, these are going to be all white places. Uh, they get prisons, right? Because the model coming out of the Midwest is uh, that prison towns are overwhelmingly white. Um, but what my first quantitative paper shows and the research that I had found a few years prior to even publishing it um, was that uh, as you increase the percent black and Latino, the probability in a town, as you increase the, as the percent black and Latino increases in a town, the probability of getting a prison increases. There is a there is a um, optimal point for uh, percent blacks so around 65 percent black. Then, if you're too black and too poor, actually, uh, you can't get a prison. Right? Um, it's tougher to get a prison if you're too black and too poor. But that was very shocking to me because I had this um, this view of prisons prison building from uh, just a straight racial and economic exploitation view, structurally deterministic, like uh, it's going to be poor white places that get these. Um, but, uh, you know, the the data, the analyses I did pointed towards something different. Once I got on the ground and interviewed people uh, in Forest City, Arkansas, uh, I was even more shocked with uh, the black uh, the black middlemen or black elite or race leaders, if you will, from Drake and Caton, they were fully in support of the prison coming. That was shocking to me, including the head of the NAACP. Well, what's their argument? Um, Can you just, uh, what's like, wh- how do they justify this? They, so some, some, the easy answer is for, for all of this, people say, why would you move your family? Why would you go write this book? I can tell you why it's all about jobs. Well, they actually, it wasn't just about jobs. It was about maintaining the image of the town. So these were people who, uh, these both black and white leaders in this town, these are the people that could have left. Karen Kafalis called some of these people uh, um, at boomerangs, right? They, they leave and come back or they end up planting themselves there. Uh, there's four different typologies in Karen Kafalis' book on rural communities. 
And some of these people had left and came back. Some were just there, but they were more professional. And they thought it was their job as the leaders in this community to save the image of the community. So, uh, and they thought the prison could save the image of the community. So to, to think about that, you know, the, the question I asked originally is what, what caused the shift from not in my backyard to please in my backyard, the shift from NIMBY to PIMBY in rural communities. And the question you have to ask uh, after that is, have you seen my backyard? So <laughs> if someplace, if, if a town wants a prison, you have to ask, what does their backyard look like? If they want a prison to improve their reputation, you really have to say what's going on in these places. And these are places that are marred by stigma and other um, other things that ruin their reputation. So they thought the prison could improve their reputation. And this is even the black leaders. Uh, they talked about the prison saving their town uh, because their town, uh, some of them, one of them in particular said, uh, he didn't want his town to end up like Gary, Gary, Indiana. Mm. Yeah. So basically what you're saying is that in s- some places are like, so I, in reading your book, stigma actually is, is I think one of the key things, right. Yeah. Um, operating, operating throughout in your argument. And so you're saying that some towns re- reputations are so, marked by stigma that actually having a prison in your town, which for many places would be like, oh no, that's like the height of stigma. They're just like, bring it on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> They're, which is very counterintuitive and I didn't expect it at all. So I, I want to ask again about the political economy. <laughs> uh, and you were talking about like how building the prison creates a constituency for the prison and would resist uh, efforts to take it down. So I, I'm a Californian, and I, I've spent most of my life in California. I live here now. And here, you know, one of the biggest political forces in the state is the California State Prison Guards Union. Um, and I remember, mm-hmm. right, I, I was, I graduated high school in 1995, so I was reading the newspapers in the 90s as we had the uh, scale-up to mass incarceration. And in the state of California, a lot of this happens through ballot initiative, where, you know, some um, organized activist group can get a law put on the ballot as direct democracy and have it passed. And these very often represent uh, powerful organized constituencies like the teachers union or the um, prison guards union. And so a lot of the um, plebiscites that led to an increase in mass incarceration, such as uh, three strikes, uh, were directly sponsored by the prison guards unions. Um, so I, yeah, so, I mean, if you, if you have any doubts about that, let me know. Cause I'm just saying this is like a casual observer of the issue and you've looked into it more carefully. Yeah. No, that's, that's, I think that, um, so the prison guard mm-hmm. union had to build up, uh, and, um, you know, Josh, Josh Page's work mm-hmm. really, uh, looks at this, right. Uh, so he looks at the California corrections officers. They, there are more corrections officers in California than there are prisoners in Illinois. Mm-hmm. There are 50,000. My last check about four years ago or so, there's 50,000 corrections officers mm-hmm. and about 45,000 people mm-hmm. imprisoned in Illinois um, about five years ago. So if you think mm-hmm. about that 
base, right? I mean, the teachers union has been manipulated by the corrections officers uh, uh, union because they've, uh, in many respects, they they'll vote against their own interests, and you know mm-hmm. things will get cut for teachers and corrections officers. Mm-hmm. They tend to keep their jobs, so they're a strong political force. But there's also these communities mm-hmm. where these prisons are built, right? And this this isn't just about California. So um, uh, Rebecca Thorpe, uh, she's a political scientist at Wa- at University of Washington. She has uh, she has some research showing that rural communities that have prisons also oppose any legislation that re- would reduce yeah, so- mass incarceration. So not only do you have these unions lobbying. Uh, in California, uh, you know, you have many, many most, per, California is an exceptional case. And I know we pay a lot of attention to California, but uh, Oklahoma has built more prisons than California. And the South has built more prisons than any other region. And the South, by and large, is a right to work space. So the union isn't going to work the same way. So the political economy behind prison building uh, I think is very diverse, and we we're just starting to understand it. But in the case of California, you're right, uh, Gabe. You're right, Gabriel. Um, this is the scenario you put forth. They built up uh, the union was built up through prison building, and they've also lobbied to uh, build more prisons. I just wanted to build on what you were saying about Oklahoma, because I, if I'm correct, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think Oklahoma actually. <clears throat> Like the rate of, 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 of women, of, of women being incarcerated in Oklahoma is, I think, high. It's like, it's like higher than anywhere else in the country, or it's one of the highest in the country. And I think it's one, another one of those possible examples of, you know, we need to, we need to feed the machine, right? Um, we, we don't want to get rid, we actually don't want to get rid of, um, of these of these prisons, right? It's a means of of economic growth, if you will, right? And so then you end up having to find more supplies for more supply for the prisons. So I don't know. I, I I'm I, just putting it out. I, there. I agree with that, but I think at a certain point, there's and, and I really have to. Uh, I'm starting to dig in this for a second book project. Um, because I'm really retracing the prison boom using quantitative data and just instead of just a case study, um, mm-hmm. like I did for my first book. So I have um, every prison geocoded into uh, a U.S. census place or town uh, and the date the prison opened. So I'm really resketching both the causes and consequences of the prison boom. I don't have a catchy title exactly for this book yet but it's something along those lines or that's that's what it's examining it won't be something along those lines necessarily are you able to give us a preview of any interesting uh findings or we're not holding you to anything but so a big so this is a big this is a big uh we've we've made a huge deal of um racial exploitation and economic exploitation being uh the reason for prison building, but I think it it's occurring at a level that we don't we don't typically think of. So, uh, or it's occurring in a way we don't typically think of. And we've made these ties 
between mass incarceration and Jim Crow or mass incarceration and slavery. Um, I, I have some preliminary analysis where uh, I'm looking at uh, census data from 1860 and, you know, where there were large slaveholdings and looking at counties where prisons were built as a predictor for counties where prisons are built. Okay, that makes sense, right? There's some correlation there. Um, then uh, looking at uh, where during Jim Crow, where um, where lynchings took place, right? There's uh, some correlation explaining prison building. But uh, the stuff I'm really digging into now, the analysis I'm really uh, trying to tease out is how does concentrated disadvantage or what I call the rural ghetto, uh, the concentration, you know, concentrated poverty, residential segregation um, within a neighborhood, right, in a rural community, how does that predict prison building? And I think that's the real key. Um, instead of just looking at a corollary over time, we can look at a direct cause of prison building. Um, and I think this is the way I'm testing um I'm testing my case study, my my ethnographic case study. I'm using quantitative data to test if the rural ghetto predicts uh, prison building, and that I think speaks speaks to racial and economic exploitation at a different level, where it's not just okay, we're going to build the prison because it gives us jobs and economic stability, but it's linked to broader structural things that are occurring in mm -hmm. these communities. So I, I was thinking or this might be something you already know, or it could be something you could test as you get into the quantitative analysis. But part of my reason bringing up the California Prison Guards Union and our plebiscites is in some ways it's easy for um, the, the guards to get their political interests served because we have this uh, plebiscite. It's, it's very easy to get a, uh, a ballot initiative on the ballot in California and that might very well be why we have uh, such intense mass incarceration, more than, say, Texas or, like you said, Illinois. Um, but I'm also wondering, what about states that don't have, uh, you know, a, a plebiscite system where or at least they do, but it's harder to get things on the ballot? In, in those states, do you tend to see a different structure? Is it just that, you know, state senators who have a, a prison in their district uh, will tend to be more in favor of it. So how, what is the political mechanism and how does it work based on the institutions of the state? That's a great question. Um, I actually have data um, looking mm -hmm. at just the House and it, the upper and lower House and the uh, gubernatorial uh, mm -hmm. governorship by party. Uh, I'm, that's why I mentioned Rebecca Thorpe. I'm actually expanding my work into looking at the politics, especially at the state level, and determining this. Uh, the local level is going to be mm -hmm. so. There's prison siting, which uh, I I define as either the feds or the uh, state trying to find a place to put a prison, and then there's prison placement, which is the political the local political economy where uh, the leaders within a town are trying to attract a prison. So that's how they get built, because there are places where um, the not my back, the NIMBY, not my backyard threshold would be too high. There are towns that don't want prisons. Um, you do have to kind of want a prison, and you have to make it known and lobby for it. So that dynamic process is very political. Um, and this plebiscite, system you're mentioning i think california like 
for so many, this is why I didn't want to study. Sure. Uh, I, I didn't want to do a case study of California, Texas, Georgia, or Florida. Those places mm -hmm. are so uh, unique. I think California is so unique because of the plebiscite system. I don't think mm -hmm. it works that way anywhere else mm -hmm. in the country. I think that uh, local, yeah. it's, it's like a good old boy network. Um, and w when I mean good old boy, I literally mean it's male dominated and they're all old and they're all connected, um, in some way. And so you have to have a, a certain level of social capital to, uh, pull a prison into your town. So that means people that, um, their connections all the way up to Bill Clinton with the building of the four city, uh, federal correctional facility, um, they got the idea in Forest City actually from Alice Walton who was trying to build a private prison and they were approached by uh, people on her behalf to build a prison. They thought a, a private prison, we're too good for a private prison. We can do better than that. Um, so they took the idea and ran with it and started talking with uh, their congressmen and the like um, uh, and states and U.S. senator, their congressmen and U.S. senators about getting a prison yeah. in Arkansas. So it's a very different uh, political well, process. Well, it, it just occurred to me as you were speaking that there's actually two separate issues. Uh, one issue is how many prisoners should the state as a whole have? And, and that's mostly what the uh, plebiscite system in California affects, right? So if you pass a third strike law, that effectively says we're going to end up having more prisoners, or at least we're going to keep the prisoners we have for much longer, which longitudinally means we'll have more prisoners. Um but it doesn't say that they're going to go in this rural town mm -hmm. or that rural town. Um, you know, you still have the issue of where do right. they go and do we want them or do we not want them at the local level? Um, so there's almost like two aspects of the political economy of um, uh, incarceration is, you know, do we have more or fewer prisoners? Do we ratchet up or ratchet down incarceration? And then do we put them here or do we put them there? There. Yes, that's exactly right. So the prison boom is often uh, equated with mass imprisonment or mass incarceration. And what I really try and what I what I do, I even have a glossary in my book where I'm I'm separating out these terms. So the prison boom for me is the move from 511 to 663, uh, 1663. Prison proliferation is uh, about the mm -hmm. widespread dispersion of prison building. And it has, you know, the logic of prison building has, when you start to look at the numbers of prisoners, so there's some mm -hmm. states that have similar numbers of prisoners and completely different uh, prison building regimes. So uh, I think at one point in time, uh, North Carolina and New Jersey had similar numbers of prisoners, but North Carolina had far, far, maybe twice as many prisons. Um, so you, there's a different logic within the state around prison siting, right, in North Carolina versus New Jersey. And we've only begun to scratch the surface of the different logics of mass incarceration at the state level. The different, we've mapped some of these trends, right, um, but we really don't have an explanation, good explanations for the wide variation in state uh, in state um, mass incarceration. And we have virtually no idea about why we have uh, wide variation in state prison.
And now, a word from Editor Bain. Currently, your manuscript addresses only the French tear. Reviewer number three suggests the conclusion could also speak to apocalyptic nihilism. You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. A special thank you to John Eason. John is a sociologist at Texas A&M and author of the book, Big House on the Prairie, Rise of the Rural Ghetto and Prison Proliferation. It's published by the University of Chicago Press. We're on the web, theannexpodcast.com, on Twitter, at Sochannex, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. On behalf of Leslie Hinkson and Gabriel Rossman, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you.